Hello, and welcome to The Go-To for Entrepreneurs in the Know, special edition. My name is Paulina Cameron. I'm the CEO of the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, a Canadian charity that energizes, educates, mentors, and connects women entrepreneurs to become wildly successful. I'll be your host for this special five-episode week-long program aimed at strengthening your and your business's resilience. I would like to acknowledge that the production of this podcast is taking place on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. This special edition will take you on a resilience journey. You will learn, challenge yourself and your ideas, and you will be empowered to make real changes in your business today so that you will be better prepared as a leader to handle the challenges of tomorrow. We're going to dive into considerations and tangible tools that will equip you in feeling ready, strong, and resilient. To support you through this learning, we've also made a special workbook available for you to download, containing exercises and templates so that you can apply your learnings straight away. Visit resilience.fwe.ca for your free workbook and information on other support to help you along. The Go-To Special Edition is brought to you by the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Support is also generously provided by the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. A huge thank you to our supporters for making this possible. This special edition of The Go-To focuses on resilience, that quality that allows people and organizations to move through adversity and into optimism. Getting into a place of possibility and of options is hard without addressing one of the biggest fears that can get in our way, money. Confronting one's fears, assumptions, and the stories we tell ourselves about money is a key early step to flexing our resilience muscles. After all, we're talking about how to strengthen our for-profit businesses so that we can continue to pay employees, that includes you, the entrepreneur, keep the lights on and grow. In this episode, we will walk through the trauma of money, what gets in our way of thriving financially, and we will dive deep into the practical aspects of money, including cash flow. Cash is queen, after all. Grab a glass of water and let's get into it. Before we continue, I am so excited to invite you to a just-launched new digital space, the sharing platform hosted by FWE in partnership with the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. The sharing platform brings our community alive and closer together. It's a space for you to ask for what your business needs and to offer what you have to support others. This bilingual and national platform will allow you to connect with fellow entrepreneurs and supporters from across the country so that you can receive what you need to move your business forward and generously offer what you have back to the community. Visit our website, fwe.ca to watch a quick how-to video and link to download it today. See you on there. As the co-founder of The Trauma of Money and founder of What the Finance Is, Chantel Chapman is considered the money teacher you have been waiting for. Renowned for her edgy, relatable, and soulful, mindful money guidance. Drawing influence from 14 years of experience as a mortgage broker, 10 years as a financial literacy consultant, and extensive research in addiction, behavioral science, trauma, and mindfulness, her distinct disciplines make learning about money the antithesis of anything you've experienced through traditional schooling. 
After completing meditation and kundalini teacher training in India and Vancouver, intentional mindfulness for healing behavioral issues with money has become a core part of her financial literacy business. Okay, Chantel. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here on this podcast. It is such a delight to have you on. And I just love your background and how varied and how integrative of so many different practices it is. And so today we're talking obviously about money. So we love it. We hate it. We ascribe meaning to it and it can keep us up at night. I've observed that especially for women entrepreneurs, it can be so deeply emotional that many free just thinking about it and would rather ignore the topic altogether. Even though we know in theory what we're supposed to do, it's often hard to actually do it. So as a starting point, can you walk me through the fears or stories around money? What's working for us? What's not? And how do they keep us from growing and adapting? Thank you so much for such a thoughtful question. Um, There's a few words that you said in your question that really stood out to me. Um, One of the words was um, the the stories around money and, you know, we, we hate it. We love it. And it's so interesting when you just think about like, what is money? (laughs) You know, money is, money is a psychological construct. It's something that we in our species has created. And we, we believe that it holds value. So Um, when I teach about money, I like to get so deep into looking at money where it's just another thing that represents something we value. So when you work deeply on your relationship with money, the word money becomes interchangeable with any other energy, um, such as time, right? So another thing you said was freeze, um, that, that is a big word for a lot of entrepreneurs when it comes to money. And the way freeze shows up is when we start avoiding, when we avoid our finances, when we avoid our cash flow statements, when we avoid the numbers, when we avoid our bank account. This is a state of freeze. And um, the reason why we encounter a state of freeze when it comes to our finances is because of another thing that you said, the stories that we tell ourselves around money. So yeah, I think um, when we're working through any behaviors that we want to change, whether it comes to our relationship with money or it comes to our relationship with time or when it comes to our relationship with relationships, (laughs) we have to look at what are the stories behind these? You know, and I always say like, become like a philosopher and ask why on everything. Why? What's, What's happening behind here? Um, so, uh, when we explore our relationship with money, the first thing we have to look at is what narrative is influencing the way we show up with money. Mm. And there's never one, there's never just one narrative. There's often multiple narratives. And, um, my, I have a business partner, Hiroko, she's a psychotherapist. Her and I actually got together and we created a program called the trauma of money. And on our exploration of this business and going deeper with our relationship with money, we came up with this six pillar model of these different um, elements that impact your relationship with money. These different elements actually are the catalyst of stories. Okay. Mm. So I'll tell you the six pillars. Um, One is generational or intergenerational trauma. 
So um, we know through the study of epigenetics that trauma can be passed on generationally, okay? Um, if you have had a someone in your family who has been through war or a time of intense scarcity or survival, that person is going to be raising their child through that lens when it comes to money, and that's going to be passed on, passed on, passed on. So that's one view of generational trauma, Okay. Another, um, another pillar we have is relational trauma. So this is trauma that happens within our, our lifetimes. And when I say the word p- trauma, people often get kind of like, oh, I don't have trauma. I haven't been in an accident. I, I'm not a war veteran. I haven't been abused. I don't have trauma. And we attach first- it to that tangible, right? Yeah. Yeah. The first thing we want to do is redefine the word trauma. So Trauma is basically a wounding. And Dr. Gabor Mate, who's one of um, the teachers that I follow, uh, he says that if you have parents, you have trauma. So <laughs> whether As you a have, parent, that's not very comforting to hear. Though no, I know it's it not. Is true. <laughs> it's not. But it's, it's just, it's the thing is, is um, trauma can happen on such a small level, right? You know, trauma can happen because maybe we go to... We go to a birthday party at six years old and we're wearing a t-shirt of a character that's not cool anymore and we're made fun of. The other um, pillar is uh, societal trauma. So societal trauma is a huge influencer of the stories that we tell ourselves around money. And one of um, one of the ways we experience societal trauma in the Western world is through consumerism. So consumerism tells us that um, if you ever experience pain or boredom or inadequacy, there's a solution and it comes in the form of a product or service. Okay. So consumerism's whole mode motivation is, you know, the bottom line, make money, sell. So that that's one element. Another element is systemic trauma. So understanding that there's certain systems in place that elevate others and marginalize, marginalize some other people. So it's important to acknowledge that. And that is an element that significantly impacts people's relationship with money. The other one in this six pillar model is the laws of nature. So, you know, this is where we would file the whole like manifesting the law of attraction, anything to do with like quantum physics and money. And then the six is financial literacy. Hmm. So it's interesting because when people come to me, they're like, I'm so bad at financial literacy. I'm really bad with my money. I avoid my cash flow planning. I, I, you know, I, I can't even handle looking at like my projections or I can't do my bookkeeping. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not a lack of financial literacy. That's one element of six. Okay. So, and it's oftentimes it's one of the other ones that is impacting your ability to even learn financial literacy. I don't believe that you can even learn financial literacy if you, if you're in a state of fear because of the Mm. stories you're telling yourself. You know, it's interesting. My background is I used to work at KPMG, my past life as a CPA, CA, and I know a lot of people who are financially literate, but haven't addressed one or a couple of the other pillars that you just talked about. And so they can do this work for someone else, but not for themselves. Yes. Yes. Such a good point. This this exact thing that you just said proves that model out. Mm-hmm. Because when it is, uh, when it is uh, 
connected to you and your own sense of worth, your own, you know, shame, it's so challenging to apply what you know, because you can't see clearly when we are in a state of fear. Um, you, you basically your prefrontal cortex, which is the area of your brain that, that really runs your reasoning. It's the area of your brain that shows you, Hey, here's all the opportunities or here's all the potential paths you can go that actually shuts down Mm -hmm. and you go into, um, like worst case scenario thinking. And when you're in worst case scenario thinking, there's no options. There's one and it's a terrible option. So I'm going to, I'm going to freeze or I'm going to go into fight or flight or, you know, we talk a lot in our trauma of money program about the window of resilience. Um, Mm. It's also known as the window of tolerance and the window of tolerance is the, the area where you can handle levels of stress or things that come up in your life in a way where you still have access to cognitive reasoning. Mm. Outside of that window of resilience is hypoarousal. So if we're on if we are on a scale of 0 to 10, the hypoarousal would be like 0 to 3 and then 4 to 7 would be your window of resilience and then 7 to 10 would be hyperarousal. So hypoarousal is freeze. This is like shut down, avoid, um, just kind of a complete surrendering, but not not in like a not in like a, a wise surrendering way, but more of like I just can't. It's like a it's a collapse, right? It sounds like overwhelm, anxiety, yes. denial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is you. You're you're like on a scale of zero to ten. You're in zero to three. This is the hypo arousal. Then um, seven to ten would be like hyper arousal. So this is fight or flight. This would be you know more action oriented uh, reactions to whatever the situation is. So it's incredibly important when you're interacting with your finances, especially in a time like this, to know where where am I at on this scale right now? Mm-hmm. If I'm feeling like this state of avoidance, um, so I want to actually maybe go back and talk a little bit about avoidance specifically. So there's a doctor um, in the U.S., Dr. Brad Klons, and he came up with these 11 different financial disorders that we most commonly see. Um, in my uh, many years of working as a financial literacy educator, I see three main financial disorders often. Mm. The first one is overspending. Mm-hmm. So overspending is as common as anxiety and depression in North America. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The second one is financial avoidance. So financial avoidance is that I just can't even look at it. And the interesting thing about financial avoidance is if you think about what you're doing, you're avoiding because you want to avoid the discomfort of looking at it. Mm -hmm. But the more you avoid, the more uncomfortable it gets, the the higher and more intense the repercussions get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's actually like you can tell like the decision making there is not even logical. So the best way to take the pressure off is just to start. And one thing we say often in the recovery world is esteemable action leads to self-esteem. If you can't, if you don't have 
the the self-esteem, if you're in that deep state, just go, just see what you can do. Just open it up, open up the spreadsheet and just look at it. Just look at it and see what happens and notice, just notice that, you know, you're surviving. Notice how it felt to just open it and look at it and in and and honor yourself and acknowledge yourself for that win because that win becomes the motivation, right? Mm. Um, I like that, that the noticing is the win. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the third most common financial disorder I see is uh, financial enabling. Mm. This one is fascinating because I see it so much with female entrepreneurs. Hmm. And um, I also love this one because when I did, uh, when I did uh, my research on this, I scored highest as a financial enabler. Yeah. And um, so basically what this is, it's, it's equivalent to like financial codependency. So... Codependency, we hear that word and we think of someone who's like desperate to be in relationships all the time. And yeah, that is a behavior of codependency, but that's not the be all and end all. And it is my belief that every single addiction, whether it be cocaine or alcohol or sex or gambling, the base of that addiction is first a codependency addiction. So the codependency is basically the dis-ease distance from ease Mm -hmm. of the loss of self. Mm. So this is where you prioritize people's comfort over your own. Mm. How does this show up? I I mean, we hear people pleasing so often. We hear needing to be liked so often. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Approval. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you say people pleasing because when I was talking before about the window of resilience um, Mm -hmm. and we were talking about fight, flight, or freeze, there's also another trauma reaction um, that is called fawning. And fawning, Mm -hmm. I would categorize more in the hypo arousal. And fawning is essentially people pleasing where you just like shut down and give in to everyone's comfort over your own. And you, if you think about it, this through the lens of trauma, the reason why you develop this um, as a trauma reaction is because you probably at some point in your life lived in an environment that was chaotic. And in order to be safe, you had to, you had to play small. You could not draw attention to yourself. You could not speak your truth. You could not, you know, rock the boat. You had to play small and you had to serve other people and make sure everyone else around you was comfortable. Otherwise, if you didn't, you could be in trouble. There could be some trouble there for you. So um, a lot of people have developed this, you know, where a trauma reaction is fawning, people-pleasing. And it shows up in their relationship with money, especially with female entrepreneurs, like I said. And it shows up in these very, very subtle ways, like when you're sitting down to price your products, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just thinking about that, like, oh, I want to charge this much. Mm, am I worthy of this? Or especially maybe- when the product is a service that you're yes, working on. It's a, a little bit quote unquote simpler when it can be I'm making this piece of clothing. This is the cost of what it 
takes to get the materials. And here's where we often see women entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, I'll say it more broadly, is they'll go, well, this is the tangible cost of producing it. This is the materials. This is the external labor. But the piece that forgets to be factored in is their own time, their own yes. energy behind it. Yeah, exactly. That's so true. And then on a service standpoint, you know, when you're pricing for a service, if you're in this like financial enabling state, you'll often go to, well, I'll just charge them per hour. But what about all of your, what about all of your experience? You know, something that's going to take, I could do something in 20 minutes that someone who doesn't have my experience would probably take 10 hours to do. Do you know what I mean? And you know, it's really interesting. I'm seeing a lot of financial enabling with women entrepreneurs who provide services in the time of COVID-19 because, you know, there's a lot of people doing like free offerings, you know, Mm -hmm. giving stuff away for free. And um, I think there's a little bit of financial enabling going on. And then there's a little bit of the herd behavior. Like, Mm -hmm. will I be seen as not generous and not charitable if I don't give something away for free. I have heard the statement that it feels icky to put a price tag or to sell something right now. Yeah. Yeah. But like, Mm -hmm. this is like putting your own air mask on first. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I've talked to many entrepreneurs who are like, well, I'm just going to give this away for free to everybody. And cause this is what people are doing. And, and it feels icky to charge. It's like, well, not everybody is in a situation where they can't afford. Like, I can't tell you how many people are out there, like buying $4,000 Peloton bikes and doing <laughs> this and that, like, well, why can't they pay for your yoga class? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so if you want to serve, Don't serve from a place of lack. You can't serve from a place of lack. This is no different than when you're creating your performer projections for a startup and you create a a cash flow model that doesn't pay you as the owner. That's not a sustainable cash flow model. This is building a business on lack, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, what I always say to people in, in this right now is like, if you really want to serve, create a financial assistance program. Mm. You know, some people can get for free. Some people can get a discount. Some people can pay, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and let's do that for the economy right now. Let's support each other's businesses. So all of this feels so amplified for entrepreneurs who, for a lot of them, when we talk about attachment or value, their business is often that there's so they, they place so much of themselves, uh, you know, their energy, their time, their value around their business. And when we think about resilience and facing challenging times, often that can get really undermined or questioned. And so for those who have been listening to your the six pillars that you walked us through in these pieces, and they're kind of seeing, okay, I think I might be here or I this resonates with me. What is a first step that they can take to address and move through this? Um, Okay. You know, in business, um, you just mentioned there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are, they they feel so like they have so much skin in the game when it Mm -hmm. comes to their business, probably because they feel a sense of purpose um, Mm. with their business. Like they feel very values aligned to their business. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my, the first piece of advice I say is, 
you cannot like it, it's not sustainable to be only purpose oriented if you haven't healed the trauma. Mm. Because sometimes our purpose is the um, is basically the result of trauma. Mm. Sometimes mm. people's purpose, you know, you see this within philanthropy a lot. Like people really want to like be like really well-known philanthropists, but they might not be doing this first and foremost for the charity. They might be doing this first and foremost because they want their name on a huge sign. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Here's a really kind of awful example. Hitler had a lot of purpose. (laughs) Where did his purpose come from? Trauma. He Mm -hmm. deeply needed to be in power, right? Mm -hmm. So first you need to acknowledge like if you if you feel like yeah my business I'm really all about this purpose you need to acknowledge what's fueling that purpose mm-hmm. and healing any trauma underneath it and the reason why you want to do this and I'm not saying like if you haven't healed the trauma your purpose is like Hitler that's not what I'm saying at all that's like a very dark example what I'm saying is that if you have a purpose um and you still have some stuff underneath, what could happen is there could be what we would call a a cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. So there's a disharmony. And when there's a disharmony, we consciously or we subconsciously Mm self-sabotage. Yeah. So um, healing, first of all, like healing and understanding the narratives that that influence you. How do we do that? First, we take inventory. We take inventory. Like, what, what is our purpose? What do we actually want? And um, part of that inventory, too, is like, I could be like, okay, my purpose is, so my purpose is to, to um, help people who suffer from the, in, their, in the realm of money from the impacts of consumerism and trauma. That's my purpose, Okay. So then underneath my purpose, I have different goals within my business. Some of my goals might not be aligned. They might be incongruent um, because they actually are fueled from trauma. So let's say one of my goals was to make like a whole bunch of money and be featured here. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm like working hard, working hard to that goal, but it's actually not aligned with my purpose because that goal is what someone someone told me I needed to do who had a different purpose and vision than I had, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's really important to make sure that like all of your goals are congruent with your purpose, especially when we're like not able to do the things that we we're doing in the past, when we've mm-hmm. kind of been brought down to like, a time of essentials, we get to reorganize our values. This is a time for inventory taking, Mm. you know, um, Mm -hmm. like, and to put this in the example of a business, I'm not going to model out my cash flow projections, um, based on the advice of someone who wanted to take their company public. If my whole desire is to own this independently, privately, right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, 
Do you know there's what I'm a, saying? Absolutely. I mean, there's such a narrative out there that in order to be successful as a business, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, it's all about this one vision of growth and growth, meaning specifically like growing revenue, growing staff, growing sales, et cetera, et cetera. And what that doesn't consider is what is the first conversation of what do you want for your life as an entrepreneur, as a yes. business owner, as a mother, as a sister, as a friend, as a daughter, as a human? What is that? And then let's build a definition of success for your life and for your business that incorporates that. Exactly. That's exactly it. What do you want? Reclaim your values, reclaim your goals, reclaim your visions, and then work with mentors that are aligned with that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, And that's Mm -hmm. what I think you guys do so beautifully is like you have, you, you really, um, elevate what that the the female or the entrepreneur mm-hmm. wants, and then match them with a mentor who's had that type of experience. Versus mm-hmm. like this is business; it has to be done like this. It's all about profit. You know what I mean? I mean, those structures are just crumbling all around yeah. us, and yeah. we're seeing that. So the yeah, the gist is up. The game is up. <laughs> totally, we're over it. So so that's step one. Um, is the inventory. Mm-hmm. inventory to reclaim my values. Step two. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Step two is now that I've got this data, um, let's, let's really kind of see where I'm at when I'm, when I'm thinking about this inventory and let's go into my window of resilience and let's take notes. So we did some inventory on like what do, what we want in life. Now let's take note of like, how does it feel when we actually have to go deep and do some of this work? Okay. Mm. So am I noticing that I'm avoiding? What am I noticing here? And let's find a practice to help us cultivate the strength of our nervous system. So that could be, you know, long, deep breaths, getting myself prepared before I go into interacting with my finances. Mm-hmm. Right. Perhaps doing it with a friend. That's something I've totally spoken to so many about that, you know, it is it is easier to do this for someone else than for ourselves, for many entrepreneurs. And use that support that you have around you if you do indeed have it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Doing it with a friend if that's what you need. What is it going to take to to get you to a place where you can approach this? Mm. And sometimes it's just little baby steps and then acknowledging your wins. And, and sometimes it's just, it's nourishing your nervous system. So you're in a place where you're not in that state of fear. You're not in that triggered aroused state. You you're moved into your window of resilience where you can see your options. You can understand that it's not worst case scenario. One exercise that we do, um, actually I'm going to give you two exercises for people that are avoiding, um, if you're noticing that you have some fear to go into your cash flow planning or handle anything on the finances side of your business or your personal life, you can try two things. One, you can do a worst case scenario exercise. Mm -hmm. So write down the worst thing that's going to happen and, and really look at that and be like, what is the actual probability of this happening? Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And oftentimes the worst thing that's going to happen is not as bad as it sounds. And you work backwards from there. What else can happen? Okay, mm-hmm. what, what will you do if these things happen? Mm-hmm. 
right? And then the second activity is let's get into our creative mind before we go into the cash flow planning. So there's a this woman, Julia Cameron, she wrote a very well-known oh, book. I yeah. love that book. Yeah, yeah, The Artist's Way. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, she has this activity that is like write down a list of 10 to 20 things of what you would do if you didn't have to be perfect, right? So what what we're doing for our brain right now is we are practicing choice. We are practicing, you know, stopping the narrative of shame for a moment. What What would you do if you didn't have to be perfect? Play around with that and then go into your finance, your financial planning or your bookkeeping, and do it from that place of like, oh, you know, it's not going to be worst case scenario. And I'm a creative badass. I will figure it out. Right. Because we're women entrepreneurs. Yeah, and exactly. We are. Exactly. We are. Oh, this has been so good, Chantal. I love the process around taking inventory, taking the time and space to observe and getting to a place of practicing choice. So as we wrap up, I have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. What does having a resilient mindset mean for you and how do you actively foster it for yourself? Oh, what a beautiful question. Um, a resilient mindset is, it encompasses a few things. It en- encompasses the mindset of a philosopher who asks why. Mm. It encompasses the mindset of a beginner who's open to anything and doesn't go into it think they, think, thinking they know everything. So there's a little bit of a surrendering in, in a, a resilient mindset. How do you actively foster that mindset for yourself? Okay, so I, I actively foster the resilient mindset by working a program. So I really believe that... Um, if you exist in Western society or really anywhere, you, you are going to, you're going to be working a program. You just not might, you might not know what that program is. So, um, you know, you could be working the program of consumerism, (laughs) right. And not really realizing it. Um, so I want to reclaim and take control of my own program that I work. So for me, that, that, um, looks like this. I have um, a dedicated devotional meditation practice. I have um, a intimate connection with my breath mm. and my nervous system. And doing this allows me to tune into my intuition, which is incredibly important as an mm-hmm. entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, cultivating the strength of my nervous system allows me to get out of a state of arousal and get into my creative decision-making cognitive mindset. Mm. So this is really how I, how I, um, how I stay in that state is just through, through my meditation practices, through the practice of mindfulness, um, being in the present moment, for example, you know, if I'm noticing that I'm feeling any feelings of scarcity, um, right now it happens a lot. There's a lot of scarcity narrative going on right now. Mm -hmm. I find abundance in the small things. So Mm -hmm. that might mean before my meal, I go through the supply chain of that food Mm -hmm. and I'm like, 
wow, I'm so grateful for the grocery store that, you know, the workers that um, brought this food here. I'm so grateful for uh, the delivery people that brought it to the store. I'm so grateful for the production facility that made this food. I'm so grateful for the farmers that grew this. I'm so grateful for the land that this food was grown on. And when I'm in that state, I'm, I am so rich. Mm. Like, wow, am I wealthy in that state, right? Just like feeling so much abundance. And then I say to myself, I really feel like this food nourishing me and it feels so abundant. And it's interesting because when you, when you're, when you start like playing around with the nervous system, you really learn that everything is external stimuli. And then there's the way your nervous system interacts with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So once I learned this concept, I'm like, whoa, I can make that sunset give me the same hits as the Prada handbag. (laughs) There's so so much we can rewrite for ourselves around that. Oh, I love, I love those moments of delight and joy and gratitude and cultivating the practice to recognize them and to name them as such to help us live and be in them in those moments. What a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Chantel, for diving deep with us about a lot and the trauma of money. For those who want to learn more about you and follow you and find you online, where can they go? Uh, The best is to go to Instagram at Chantel Chapman, C-H-A-N-T-E-L-C-H-A-P-M-A-N. And in my bio on Instagram, I have a little directory of all the things I kind of do on there so you can see what resonates with you and go from there um yeah and Paulina I just want to acknowledge you for doing this podcast for serving uh, entrepreneurs in the way that you do and for all the amazing work that you do at the forum for women entrepreneurs it's it's so um empowering and and inspiring so thank you so much for the work you do thank you Chantal The Scotiabank Women Initiative is listening to the needs of women entrepreneurs and we're thrilled to once more collaborate with FWE on this special edition of The Go-To. We're also providing education through our online knowledge centre with research, tools, resources and of course, learning aids. Each learning aid allows you to assess your business IQ by evaluating your knowledge in a variety of areas. For example, Benchmarking Financial Readiness talks about identifying opportunities to strengthen your financial knowledge and your financial confidence. In managing your social capital, you'll explore ways to develop business relationships that add value to your network. We hope you're getting the most out of FWE's The Go-To Special Edition Podcast. We also invite you to visit our Knowledge Centre at scotiabankwomeninitiative.com for best practices and new ways of thinking. Rabina Ahmed Haq is a journalist and a personal finance expert. She regularly appears on TV and radio across Canada and writes for several online and business magazine publications. This includes CBC Radio and Television, Global News Toronto, and Global News Radio 640 in Toronto. She writes regular columns for for several magazines, as well as her own website, alwayssavemoney.com. Rubina began her career as a broadcast journalist in 1999. As a business reporter, she has worked for a CP24 from the Toronto Stock Exchange and reported for BNN. Her work has also appeared in the Toronto Star and various other national magazines. 
She has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the York University and is an alumna of the Humber College Postgraduate Journalism Program. She's also completed the Canadian Securities course. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rubina. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Rubina, I'm excited to dive into this. Cash flow, money. There's a lot. Yes. <laughs> there's a lot that we can unpack here. You know, there's part around smart money planning, such as ensuring there's enough money in the bank for payroll. But at a higher level, there's also the part about equipping ourselves as business owners and as individuals so that we can make smart decisions. For example, when a crisis strikes, currently we're recording in COVID, but there's so many other circumstances that can happen. How can we use cash flow as a tool to project how much runway we have or time we have left or as a forecasting tool before we need to close? How much revenue do I need if we keep operations? Do I bump up? Do I bump down? So let's maybe dive in there. Like, how can we use this tool and really support ourselves? Well, when you look at your business, just like you look at your personal finances, which is what I focus on, you have to know how much your business costs each month to run. And plan for emergencies. I mean, you know, you mentioned COVID-19. This is an emergency that most of us uh, weren't even able to imagine, forget mm -hmm. about planning mm -hmm. for, but there are still individual things that can happen. There can be a flood in your restaurant. There could be um, a, a main person in your business that is key could get sick or move on to another business. Um, you could lose that person somehow and all of a sudden your business is affected. So you need to know how much your business is costing you each month. You know, there's so many different uh, numbers out there of how much money you should have in the bank. Cash is king when it comes to emergencies. Uh, but at least six months to one year of money that you could at least keep the lights on in your business, pay the utilities, pay the property taxes, pay the minimum um, salaries that you would be required to pay to keep that business running. You should know what those costs are and aim to have that much money in the banks that in emergency, you can go to that, uh, go to that money. And it shouldn't be always a line of credit because remember, a line of credit is just adding to your debt load, which eventually needs to be paid off. So in an ideal world, if something like COVID-19 um, happened to your business and it was shut down, you would say, okay, I... Uh, I'll have to lay X amount of people off who will then collect EI or furlough them. So I guarantee them a job back, but I have enough money that I can keep my business running until end of August. And so I know that, yes, I'm going to be losing revenue because people will not be coming in and spending money and buying things or creating, um, creating projects with me, which, which I get mm -hmm. paid for. Um, but at least I won't lose my business. At least it won't be in a situation where I can't pay my rent and I can't pay my utility. What are some best practices you can set from day one that can set you up going forward? Well, you probably need to redo your business plan because the business world is going to be completely different. So whether you run a restaurant or a daycare or you have, you know, a dog walking business, it doesn't matter. It's all going to be different after COVID-19 ends, after a big pandemic like this is actually in control and people feel safe going out in the community again. So I would think that you need to go back, even if you've been profitable, even if you've been making money, some restaurants are still saying they're making money through takeout and other means. Um, it's still a good idea to go back and do a, do a forecast of what the next three months will look like, what the next six months will look like, what the next year will look like. Do some research, some market research of how many people are actually needing your business right now. Because as you are in debt, 
a lot of other people are going to be in personal debt. Mm-hmm. And so they may not be buying extra things. So if you fall into a luxury category, like a restaurant or a gym or something that is considered an extra in people's lives, that's usually the first thing people cut when they don't have enough money. They still continue to put their kids in daycare. They still continue to buy groceries. They still continue to get their car fixed. Like these are things that have to happen. Uh, but if you, you can assess whether your business and the more luxurious or more sort of extra your business is, the more you need to prepare for a slower ramp up of that business actually getting up and running. The other part of it is that there's going to be a lot of pent up energy. Mm. So even for myself, you know, there's a lot of like, I want to go shopping. I want to go to a restaurant. I Mm want to buy things. And so for people, you know, we know that millions of Canadians are out of work, but there's also millions of Canadians that are working and still getting that same salary. Many of them have been able to actually save money during this time Mm. because they're not commuting, they're not spending money at work. And so there is going to be that group of people that will be out spending some money, but there may be still, you know, a little bit of hesitation as to how safe the environment is. Do they want to go into restaurants? Do they want to go into malls? And so all of that, depending on your business, you need to plan accordingly and think from the customer's perspective, like how would I feel using the business that I have created after this, after this is all said and done? You know, it's so such a good point to make to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer from that point, financial perspective. I think a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners are often used to thinking about their clients when they're thinking about how to market to them or how to position things, but to think about them and their spending habits and how they will interact is a really valuable exercise. Yeah, and I think that we are fundamentally going to be changed when it comes to our personal finances. So before, I mean, for 10 years, I've been a personal finance journalist. I've been hammering the point home that everybody needs an emergency fund. But this is the first time where many people have actually realized, oh, that's why I need an emergency fund. Are there some tried and true systems or technologies or even, you know, ongoing habits or practices that you really recommend? I think that we need to make uh, better projections about cash flow. So I know we talked about it at the beginning, but we really need to sit down and think about how our business actually uh, brings in revenue from January to mm. December and try to those, those months, like say you're the type of business that really does well during Christmas, um, try to those months, then save and plan for the months, maybe in July where you don't do as well. Like if you have a business that's more geared towards winter or, you know, people tend to use it more in this, in the colder months, then you need to plan for that. Um, and, and also think about, um, cash flow from a perspective of you don't have to pay for everything in one go. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a big item that you need to buy for your business, financing is a great tool for you to improve that. So these are just some things that can help you manage your business month to month rather than um, trying to get a lot of cash to buy a certain thing to improve your business. So you can finance certain purchases. It works, you know, it works better from a tax perspective as well. And then you're paying for whatever that big item is over three, four years. You know, we need to see business expenses different than personal expenses. A lot of us will say, I want to buy my car cash because I don't want to be in any debt once I drive Mm. it off the road. That's not true for business because in business, it's better to have, you know, some of your big ticket items financed so that you're making those payments every month. Uh, you're taking advantage of, uh, you know, um, of, of uh, all the tax advantages of that as well, too. And you're not overburdening yourself with these big purchases that then you have to spend you know, many, many months saving for and putting that one big lump sum down. That can also hurt mm-hmm, your business. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a cash flow tip that we talked about actually on season one of our podcast, which was um, to 
get money in as fast as you can and get money out as slow as you can. So even negotiating yes. with your vendors about having longer term payments, but then receiving money more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings up a really good point of invoicing. I mean, um, you know, if you're a small business owner and the way that you collect your money is through invoicing um, and you need to be on top of that, whether you do it once every two weeks or once a month, you need, you cannot, two things can happen. One, um, you're going to have your money coming in in very staggered, in a very staggered way. And it's going to be hard for you to manage your cash flow. Um, And secondly, I mean, sometimes you are dealing with smaller vendors that can go under Mm. that can maybe their uh, situations may change and they may not be able to pay an invoice from three months ago. So it's better uh, to always just attach that invoice. And this can go come through, you know, you can you can get software that will help you. Um, You can obviously hire somebody that will help you. I mean, these are things that it's just important that if you're finding it hard staying on top of your on top of your invoicing, so making sure that money is always coming in when it's supposed to. Then find ways, whether that be through software or through hiring somebody, to make sure that you're getting the money when it's due and you're not um, delaying that process. Because you're right, you're you're getting the money later. You can't put it towards your business or invest it somewhere, and that lets loss money as well too. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Okay, so Rubina, you, I mean, you think about finance a lot. You think about both personal finance, you think about the implications of it. What are you hearing and seeing right now in terms of how folks are thinking about it, how businesses are thinking about a kind of broader scale? Um, You know, I mentioned before that I think we're fundamentally going to have a different relationship with mm-hmm. money when we are um, when we are through this pandemic. And I think that that is the one thing that I'm looking at mm-hmm. the most is that people are now much more uh, concerned about how am I going to survive after this is over? The government has stepped in and given, you know, the minimum amounts of money that people need to pay their bills. Uh, banks have stepped in and said, you can defer your mortgage, which costs money. That, that's something that I think people now are aware mm-hmm. of. But in the beginning, there was a lot of confusion as to how that worked. Um, automobile company, auto insurers rather have stepped in and said that if you're not, you know, not using your car, you can, uh, you can have a little bit of a break on insurance. But when this is all over, some of the small businesses that right now are not considered essential are going to go under. I mean, already we're hearing surveys of like one in five small businesses saying that we will not be able to survive, um, after this is done because we just don't have the means to keep keep running. We can't even keep the lights on. And some of those small businesses are essential for people to get back into work. Mm. So for example, if you run a daycare and that daycare goes under, there's lots of families that relied on that daycare to drop their kids so that they could go to their job. So there will be that ripple effect. So I'm really watching Mm. that. I'm really watching you know, the, the companies that have been considered non-essential that are essential in our everyday normal life. How are they going to survive? How are they going to be supported? And then if they don't, how that's going to impact people who were fine working from home, their company set them up, but all of a sudden the daycare they sent their kids to, it no longer is, uh, no longer is open and they're scrambling for childcare. And in the, in the interim, they may lose hours or even have to quit their job because they simply can't, uh, make it work. So I'm sort of looking for those ripple effects of between personal finance and business that that's going to happen. And when you think about that, what do you think are the opportunities? So, you know, for folks who maybe have had to shut down or are now looking at entirely new jobs they need to find or want to create new businesses because they can't be where they used to be, what opportunities can they, can they look at perhaps? 
So even before all of this happened, uh, jobs with softer skills were already starting to become more in demand because AI is taking over a lot of those jobs that are just sort of uh, in the same thing over and over again. And a lot of people will say, well, robots are taking my job, but then it's opening up this entire new industry. A lot of that has to do with uh, social work. A lot of that has to do with working with people who have mental mm-hmm. health issues. A lot of that has to do with even just um, having the ability to be a good public speaker. So teaching things like public speaking and how to and how to get your message across and these sort of softer jobs where it really requires a, a personality, a person that's comfortable with themselves, a person who's able to teach others. Um, and uh, speaking of teaching, that's also going to be a job that, that can't be done by robots. Okay, so Rubina, one last question for you today. What does having a resilient mindset mean for you? And how do you actively foster it for yourself? Um, I think it means like... You take each day as it comes. So um, being resilient doesn't mean that things don't affect you and that you don't have down days and good days. I mean, I think that it's impossible for everyone to always feel good. Um, you know, you're going to have days where you're not going to feel great about what's happening in your career or what's happening in your family life. And uh, I think resilient means resi- to be resilient means that you understand that those days are going to happen and you prepare for them and that you let yourself experience those mm. days. Um, it also means taking care of your finances. Uh, one thing for sure that is becoming clear during this pandemic is that those people who did save before this all started are much more comfortable with what's happening in the world than those people who did not save. Um, not that that's any, that, that's not a finger wagging comment at all, because in some cases people have been unable to save. They've been living paycheck to paycheck last 10 years. So it's been impossible for them. But this is, you know, again, these kind of, foundational things that you do before ahead of time, you think ahead of, you know, the emergencies, they will help you be more resilient. And so that you can focus on. So if you are having anxiety during this time, at least the anxiety is about um, what's happening in the world, not necessarily about your personal finances, which can just exacerbate um, your, your feelings about what's, what's Mm -hmm. going on uh, even Mm -hmm. more. Thank you so much for joining us, Rubina, and for walking us through these tangible points of advice and perspectives on uh, Cash's Queen (laughs) pointers. For those who want to learn more about you, follow you online, learn from you, where can they find you? Um, Twitter is the best usually for me. My Twitter handle is at always save money. And that's also my website, alwayssavemoney.com. So you can check me out there. You can send me a a DM or a message if you have any questions and uh, I'll I mean, I'm not a financial advisor, but I always try to point people in the right direction. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rubina. That is so timely for right now. (laughs) Thank you, Chantal and Rubina, for joining us today to dive into the trauma of money and your expertise on financial and cash flow practices. Share your own experiences or ask questions. Tweet or tag us at FWE Canada. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe so that you'll always be in the know. All of this program's episodes are available at fwe.ca slash the go-to. And don't forget to download your free workbook at resilience.fwe.ca. Get exercises and more so that you can apply your learnings to your business today. The Go-To Special Edition is brought to you by the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Support is also generously provided by the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. A huge thanks to both of them. Thank you also to our incredible production team, self-hired media, and Hummingbird Translations. 
both of whom make it possible for us to bring you this podcast in English and in French. Until next time, stay ready, resilient, and strong. Thank you.